This episode was recorded a few weeks ago, so bear with me as you may hear some time-specific references, but the overall topic is still very relevant to today, so let's dive on in. Welcome back to Real Relatable. I'm your host, Donna Green, and I am so excited to share with you all that we officially have our very first guest on the podcast. Thomas Darrell Polk is the owner of Polk Photography since 1969, a member of the Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, the Phi Chapter at Ohio University, a third generation college graduate, an Apple product and tech fanatic, but my favorite way to refer to him is simply dad. Dad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Don. It's nice to be here. Good. You know, I'm, I'm glad that we have this opportunity to do this together. As I know, I get a lot of my creative mindset from you and everything you do with photography and, you know, more recently getting into acting and the voice acting. And we're both kind of looking to pursue the voice acting, but um, it's, it's, it's pretty neat right now to do this together. So true. How, that is. <laughs> how are you holding up in quarantine? Uh, doing just fine, actually. Um, that's not a big issue at all. I'm in a small town in Florida called Titusville and a uh, population of about 55,000. Uh, so we are pretty isolated from the metropolitan area closest to us, which is Orlando, which has a population of uh, roughly uh, 750,000. Wow. So I'm uh, pretty much isolated here. So Good. And I'm able to carry out my daily activities, which is basically playing tennis outdoors. <laughs> and vlogging and everything else. Yeah, vlogging and video capturing and editing and YouTubing. Yeah, yeah all the things. You know, so we know there's a lot going on um, managing quarantine and the unrest that's hit the country yet again. And so I really wanted to bring you onto the podcast as someone who has a lifetime of firsthand experience being a black man in America. Um, that being said, I kind of wanted to pick your brain a bit to understand more generationally how you were raised and what you experienced um, as an adolescent and kind of compare that to what you're seeing now. Um, where we're at in the U.S. So, Dad, let's get into starting with, like, what era um, were you born in and where did you grow up? Okay, I was born uh, in the mid-50s, 1954 to be exact, and I was born in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I lived in a community there in Nashville that was segregated, honestly, um, mm -hmm. and it was a very nice community. I like to uh, talk about that upbringing because in that community, we had a lot of different role models. Uh, and looking back on it, I guess uh, you could decide on different career choices from the uh, people that lived in my neighborhood. I mean, in my neighborhood, we had professional people such as police officers, firefighters, uh, dentists, lawyers, principals, teachers, uh, doctors. Um, we even had pimps and prostitutes. And at that time, the uh, number running was a, a, a underground uh, business that was uh, I witnessed in my community seeing uh, people uh, planned what was called it was called the numbers but it was based off for the the, the uh, end of the day of the stock returns oh and, wow so um, people we, were kind of gambling mm -hmm. on on those numbers interesting yeah. mm -hmm. and it was a way that many people made a living you know yeah. um, 
but yeah, it was great role models. I saw a little bit of everything. Some of my best friends, parents were doctors and uh, a couple of them had homes out by a lake and uh, two in particular uh, had homes at, on the lake. And one was uh, more about hunting and fishing and sporting. And the other one was more or less into the culture of art, uh, literature, uh, and music. Uh, one had a power boat and one had a sailboat. And I leaned more toward that culture of literature and art and a sailboat, which kind of suited my personality. That, to me, helped me create the values I think that I have about life now. Mm-hmm. And like I said, because it was such a diverse group of people in that community, you had all type of education levels, you know, from um, the bachelor's degrees to master's to doctorates and, you know, um, and then a lot of civil servants, the police officers and the firefighters who, you know, had good careers and they were yeah. just great role models for us uh, growing up. And what was popular in, in pop culture at that time? Uh, one of the ways I remember as a kid in elementary school is when the Beatles came to town or came to the United States and how popular that was. Uh, culturally, you know, we listened to uh, AM radio and it was the Rhythm and Blues uh, channel. And um, around that era, I believe Motown was coming in on the scene. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, we listened to the Supremes and the Temptations. Maybe this is some of the things that kind of a little bit later. But uh, there was one radio station and it broadcast, uh, you know, black music. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty much the culture. And then like, you know, the TV culture thing was the Beatles coming into the United States. And I meant to ask what, um, so I know that you were born in in Nashville. And so Mm -hmm. like how much time did you spend in Nashville versus when you then moved on to Cleveland? My mother moved to Cleveland in 1965. So that was about 11 years old. But during that time, uh, especially between like 11 and 15, I would always spend my summers back in Nashville. So uh, coming to Ohio from Tennessee was a pretty much a culture shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, the segregated neighborhoods still existed. So we lived in an all-black community in Cleveland. But it was a lot of roughnecks. Uh, there were a lot of gangs. Do you feel like Cleveland was just more rough in comparison to Nashville? Yeah. And then, you know, looking back on it now, statistically, you have to look at, well, Cleveland's a much bigger city than Nashville. Mm -hmm. And so even though we might've had some of those same issues in our smaller community in Nashville, but in Ohio was more of an industrial town where Mm -hmm. that neighborhood in Nashville was more of a, um, more of like actually an educational town. There were uh, two historical black, universities there, uh, Tennessee State University, which had a, it was called Tennessee A&I, which uh, stood for agriculture and industry. So they were developing a lot of black minds to go into agriculture or industrial industry. And then there was a historic Fisk University that was nearby. And uh, so a lot of those people that I mentioned had professions, were graduates from these, from these schools. Uh, and it was a pretty close-knit community, you know, organizational-wise, and even religious-wise. The African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME Church, was a pretty well-known um, denomination of Christianity that uh, most people attended. So it was a, a closer-knit community in Nashville, where uh, in Cleveland was such a large population that there was a lot of different facets. And it was more of an uh, industrial town, what's called like a blue-collar 
mm-hmm. worker. Mm-hmm. And uh, many of these people were um, manufacturing, you know, had great jobs, don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, but they worked in steel mills and automobile plants. And it was sort of a mecca, if you will, historically, we look how uh, people, you know, migrated to the north from the south for more opportunities. And in many cases, uh, just for peace of mind uh, mm-hmm. that uh, they had without it being threatened with their lives being taken that was, you know, happening in the south. And tell me more about that. How was, um, like, you know, in terms of lives being taken, was that centered around maybe some gang violence like um, there was in the Cleveland area or like what was the catalyst behind that? Well, one of the things that happened that I witnessed in the Cleveland area um, in terms of uh, of violence was the riots took place in the 60s. Mm. Um, I remember a white minister being killed. And everybody was pretty much protesting the injustice that, you know, was taking place uh, uh, in America at that time. Um, But I remember National Guard troops roaming the streets. I remember um, businesses having the word soul uh, on their windows to indicate that it was a Black-owned business and do not, Mm. um, you know, destroy this place. One incident personal with a family member was um, there was a family that was living in the heart of the riots and they were trying to uh, flee for safety and the police shot up the car with a man, his wife, and a small child, but nobody was killed. But I remember seeing that automobile the next day at this uh, uh, man's um, parents' house and the car was riddled with bullets holes. I mean, it was just like right there in your face, you know, broken windshield. Uh, fortunately, nobody was killed in it, but it was- Miraculous, uh, nobody was killed in that. This is right. And what prompted so, them, do you know why they maybe targeted that? You know, I'm not 100% clear of all the history of the riots um, that took place at that time. But being a, a young child, I was just like witnessing all this stuff and not really knowing, you know, what was behind all of it. And it's not until now as a older person that uh, the history of a black people is more important to me now than ever before. Mm-hmm. Just to uh, be uh, aware, to yeah. be more aware and to make others more aware. Like currently, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma from May of 1921 were destroyed. And this was history that honestly, I never knew anything about until maybe the last 10 years mm. and now is something that's uh, in the forefront of, of the history of how uh, people uh, have been um, killed, you know, in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really important, I think, now for everyone to know this, especially with the current situation in terms of, um, you know, Black Lives Matter right. and um, the movement that's uh, getting worldwide, worldwide attention to the plight of Black people. Um, all over the world, actually, and the discrimination and the uh, injustices that have been uh, done. Well, you know, with grandma, too, I'd be curious to know what maybe she taught you or was there anything that grandma um, ever cautioned you against from, like, leaving the house or understanding maybe interactions with some people, anything like that? Or do you think that you're maybe just too young to even totally grasp what she was saying? No, one thing that I do remember, and this was um, 
part of um, how she ingrained into me how to act around people that didn't like me or people mm. that held something against me. She and I actually went to a restaurant in downtown Nashville shortly after people who had sat in on the protest to why they couldn't be served there. Because I remember seeing, you know, whites only, uh, Negroes on this side, and the whole uh, segregated um, um, things that were going on. And so after this uh, protest and this department store said, okay, now, you know, black people can come and eat here. She and I went there and I uh, think she was trying to instill me a how to behave with people that didn't care for me. Mm. And she said, when people are being rude, you be nice back to them, be even extra nicer back to them and don't give them any, um, you know, rebellious um, responses to their uh, rude behavior. Mm-hmm. And that is something that kind of that really stuck with me a lot. And I remember she intentionally went down there to exercise her rights to be there and shared that with me. And that's a, you know, a lot of what I feel like people aren't understanding at this point or, you know, people who um, are against the Black Lives Matter movement and um, things like that. It's, it's understanding that, you know, you're not even 70 or 66 with all of these vivid memories of what grandma taught you and um, experiencing segregation and, you know, seeing police brutality and all of these things. And, you know, what's frustrating for, uh, I think a lot of people is that there's this notion as if just because segregation is over or, um, you know, things are quote unquote better in the country that poof, everything's fine. You know, everybody has the same opportunities. Everybody, you know, where racism isn't, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, as if people just flip a switch and it's done with. And that's no, not how no, that, no, 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 no. That is not the case at all. Um, there has been systemic racism going on for years. I witnessed it uh, in Cleveland. I witnessed it in Nashville. Um, but one of the things I used to always say, my observation and the difference between living in the South and living in the North was that in the South, uh, people let you know how they felt about you and where you were wanted and unwanted. Mm. And it was pretty easy for them to be, uh, they were upfront with it, you know. Mm. Uh, in the North, it seemed like there was more smile on your face and stab you in your back, where oh. I experienced the uh, discrimination and racism deceitfully uh, where I can appreciate if you couldn't appreciate racism mm-hmm. at least in the south they were more forward with you to let you know where you were welcome and not welcome versus um, being you know unsure of some mm-hmm. experience that you have and you think it's positive and you know everything's fine and then come to find out later that's not really <laughs> you know how they felt about yeah. you or you yes. know, yeah. maybe hear it through the grapevine or something or you, or you, or you, you witness it early. You see that yeah. you were deceived, right? You know, right. thinking it's going to be one way, and it turns out to be another way. Yeah. So uh, those were always uh, challenging times. Um, one of the things I think to um, why my life was sort of enriched outside of the fact that I was in a grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of tremendous role models is that education was very, very important to my family, mm-hmm. uh, both on my mother's side and my father's side. Uh, they were very spiritual through faith and churches and you know religious, but they were also realized the importance of education. As I mentioned before, there were two 
historically black universities right there in town. So, you know, the, the value of education was extremely, extremely high. I attended a couple of parochial schools. Um, my first grade, I re- it was at a public school where your grandmother, my mother taught. And uh, the education there, I vividly remember, uh, that school was all black. And it was interesting, to say the least. But um, then after that, I went to an all-black parochial school where your fundamentals, reading, writing, and arithmetic were taught. Nothing about history, nothing about really the pride, but it was a you know Catholic school, so faith and religion was important on, in that experience. And then the following year, I went to a integrated parochial school that was predominantly white. Mm. And there is where I found myself not fitting in probably as well as the white folks wanted me to fit in. I remember my class, it was three blacks, uh, myself and another gentleman and one woman, uh, one young lady. How old were you? Michael, Do you remember? Michael Moore and Lynette Watkins. And Michael and I both liked Lynette the most. <laughs> and um, we were the only black kids. In fact, that class was so small. I think it was the third grade and the third and fourth graders shared the same classroom. It was like the fourth grade on one class on one side and the, and the third on the other side. And uh, we stood out, you know, the yeah. three of us. And um, for that reason, uh, I think we were somehow, because many of our classmates, you know, they came from all white communities, probably right. had in, no interaction with, with black people. Just like us, we had no interactions with white people. Right. We were just um, fortunate enough to be able to attend uh, this, this school. That interaction there was a little troublesome for me, to be honest. And then the year after that, I went back to a Cleveland school that was also predominantly black. Well, it was all black, but we had mm-hmm. white nuns. I don't think there was one lay. Lay means someone that wasn't a nun. There was a teacher there, and none of them were black. So I don't remember much of history being told there. And when you said that history wasn't taught in schools um, and now well into adulthood, you're learning so much more about your history and connecting the dots more about the injustices. Right. And I think it's interesting because like when we were in school, you know, it's dedicating the month of February to Black History Month and um, it wasn't until I was in college, I think my, I think it was my freshman year even of college where we had a, um, wasn't African American history, it was a black studies course or a black history course where you go way back into time, you know, pre-slavery because, you know, the way that American history teaches it is as if black history didn't start until we got here, you know. Um, but, you know, being able to learn more about, you know, the richness of the economies and the, you know, ways of life and stuff like that, that we had in Africa in those civilizations versus like what you learn here is like started with nothing and then you're expected to just build everything. We don't have anything like it's it's really eye opening, even, you know, as as black people just in that community. I do recall seeing Mayor-elect Carl Stokes. I remember seeing the riots in that community. And at that school, I remember we were uh, on a camping trip for the week and uh, we got the news of uh, Martin Luther King being assassinated. Mm. 
Um, so I did witness or live through the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King, but not realize, at an age of not realizing the impact of it, but, you know, on yeah. retrospect, looking back on it is, has a lot of different means. But well, I think, too, you know, as you grow up and you have these experiences from, you know, predominantly white school, the predominantly black school, you know, those kinds of things, these are, you might not recognize it at the time, but they do form who you are. And, you know, maybe how you deal with situations going into, you know, adulthood. Do you think, I know um, you're a proud Alpha Phi Alpha member. And um, do you think that maybe just having that community around you at OU is what made you join or like what prompted you to do so? Well, actually, um, I didn't know much about Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. before uh, joining. It's just that I had a, a good friend, a high school classmate who uh, was a year advanced. Uh, he uh, went to Ohio State and he pledged Alpha there. And when he came home that summer, uh, he uh, and I and some of the other, we were all like basketball players together and whatnot. And so he had introduced me to his fraternity brothers. And um, a little bit about my background, I'm my only child, only male, I lost my father due to violence at age six, who was killed by a black man who was mm-hmm. not uh, prosecuted or anything happened to him badly. So um, I um, didn't have any siblings and uh, bonding with other young men in my age group was important to me. So after witnessing uh, that summer, uh, my friend's um, fraternity brothers, uh, when I went to school, I said I wanted to pledge the, fr- the same fraternity. And uh, again, not knowing a whole lot about it, but I just knew that I wanted to become a member for a sense of either belonging or a sense of you know mm-hmm. developing a brotherhood that I never had. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was uh, important to me in uh, getting into uh, Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. And then, of course, later in life, uh, m- mystically, somehow, I found out that two of my father's brothers were members of the fraternity. And one of my first cousins uh, is also a member of the fraternity. Oh, wow. And do you think that all of these life experiences came into play as, you know, you were expecting your own kids, you know, you know myself and, and Jennifer, uh, my older sister, and if so, how? Well, I, I like I was referring back to the uh, influences I had with my two best friends whose fathers were doctors and exposure to the uh, the culture of uh, literature and music and art, and then the other one, the sporting and uh, gaming and hunting and fishing. Uh, those things uh, just kind of really stuck with me a long time, and I was just always interested in, you know, exploring and learning more. So bringing uh, you guys up, I just wanted you all to have as many exposures to different things uh, as possible for you to form your own ideas, you know, about the about the world, and to always. Uh, being open to uh, seeking, you know, new adventures, you know, I don't know if you guys remember, but um, I never attended a powwow, a a Native American powwow (laughs) as a kid, but I saw that as an opportunity to expose you and your sister to as something that I hoped that would, you know, embed some character in your life. Um, So that was an example of how I wanted to kind of apply my own experience to you to to you and your sister were you ever concerned that we might experience um some racial turmoil as you did you know to a degree 
in your childhood or even, you know, adulthood? Um, well, yeah, I, I remember having a conversation with your sister uh, about uh, racism today and how, um, you know, don't get duped to thinking that people care about you or tell you they care about you when they really don't. Uh, and that going back to, again, to my feelings about how white folks treated black folks in the North and how white folks treated black fo mm. folks in the South, mm -hmm. uh, where you could be deceived and be disillusioned by white folks in the North, where you give your trust and open up to them and something happened, you get stabbed in the back as a result of doing that. Um, you know, we tried to, uh, your mother and, and I, we wanted to provide you guys with the best experience for an environment that we thought was safe, um, multicultural, and um, enriching in Shaker Heights, Ohio. You know, so Absolutely. it was a community that had a lot of diversity, a lot of uh, intellect. Uh, it uh, was a community I felt in that area was best for you guys. And my own experience in growing up in Warrensville Heights was, was a mixed community as well. Uh, but it was, um, again, made up mostly of blue collar type workers. And um, many of the kids that I went to high school with in my era in Warrensville was the escape of uh, those who could afford to come out of the, the, the ghetto, out of the city, to mm -hmm. come to the suburbs. And hopefully, you know, these people were getting some, you know, better opportunities. And if I could just speak for a minute on that mm -hmm. desegregation thing that, uh, makes me feel a little uncomfortable is the fact that once that desegregation laws are put in effect, a lot of those role models that I had growing up in my community with the income uh, and economic means of being able to leave and go into these new integrated communities uh, sort of left the um, black community of those who couldn't afford to get out sort mm -hmm. of abandoned. Yeah. And then it just seems like those neighborhoods went downhill. Mm. I don't, to me, I personally, I, I don't think that there were enough role models in those communities for people to go like, hey, you know, I could do better. You know, there's yeah. something better for me. But then, you know, the drug infiltration and then, um, you know, the incarcerations mm -hmm. and all these things start taking place. And then the fear mongering that, uh, you know, white people were doing toward black people to make them you know, feel less. I think that the thing is now coming to light to where, yeah, this is what's been going on for all these years and that uh, it's not going to be stood for much longer. Yeah. And, and there's definitely a strong history of, um, you know, making black people out to be these animals or, you know, you and I both watch 13th, um, which is really good. And, you know, even enlightening in some aspects for me, I'm kind of building upon what I already know or, you know, what I've already researched and things like that. Um, and also what I've already experienced, but um, it's not like, you know, everything is disappearing overnight or, you know, it's maybe, maybe we're at a time where um, the racism in this country is more like how it was in Cleveland of being a little bit more under wraps, if you will. Um, but you know, learning later that people don't like you or, um, you know, it's their actions or it's like the subtleties of the things that are said to you or, you know, those microaggressions and stuff like that. Um, but I do think that, you know, with Jennifer and myself and um, 
from our upbringing, just like you said, um, you and mom really did put us in a, in a place that allowed us to, um, experience a, a plethora of cultures and, um, people and experiences and all of that. And I know that's helped, you know, shape me to who I am. And, uh, I think that there are people who don't, I know there are people that don't have those same opportunities, uh, that are, you know, mostly in black communities that haven't been able to maybe break the mold and, you know, see that role model, like you mentioned, um, to see someone that looks like them be able to, you know, do whatever it is that they aspire to be. Yeah, to have those uh, opportunities. And now uh, we can really see how economics plays such a significant role in Mm -hmm. what we can be exposed to. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been pushing a lot for Black-owned businesses and things like that. And uh, this is part of why, you know, being able to see people in, in those different roles or to be able to, you know, push more dollars and things like that into the communities that need it. And, you know, the places that have the resources to be, to be able to help out and, you know, to kind of open up that world. Right. Um that's so important to uh, a community. And a lot of that was destroyed with the, uh, well, after the uh, desegregation and integration mm-hmm. took place, in my opinion. Back mm-hmm. in those same neighborhoods that I up there in Nashville, there were Black-owned businesses that provided services, you know, for Black people and white, I mean, anybody, but they were mm-hmm. just, you know, good businesses. And uh, today we just don't see a, um, a uh, communities that have those striving businesses, Black-owned businesses that Black people use, uh, your dry cleaners, and mm-hmm. we see a more, you know, hair salons and barbershops, and, mm-hmm. um, but the convenience stores and some of the lower economic communities are run by others, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of those people that I knew that owned these type of stores in these communities were offered um pretty nice buyout so they sold oh. you know and they sold to immigrants mm. from other uh, countries so what do you think about the people like are even against you know the black lives matter movement or basically speak so poorly about black people be honest it's probably not worth my while to even think about yeah <laughs> you know touche it's, it's there's so many more important things to be explored if you will mm-hmm. especially about our culture especially about our history to think about to take some actions forward so given any kind of time just distracts in my mind from doing something of more value in terms of uh expanding my own awareness to share with others because i think it's inf- important that what we learn we share and what we learn we use to uh, empower ourselves Right. You know, you and mom gave uh, Jennifer and I the opportunity to have a better life. You know, we were exposed to a lot, um, but that doesn't mean that we can't feel for or, you know, understand how not everybody is brought up in, you know, those kinds of conditions. You know, we're a a product of our environment, right? So again, you know, we had those opportunities given to us and, um, Unfortunately, a lot of black and brown communities don't have that. And it's not easy to get out of if that's all you see. And, you know, that unfortunately can be your mindset. Yeah. Can I just tell you a little story about our upbringing and yeah. Shaker? Yeah. Um, 
you know, we had a neighbor. Um, he and I had a discussion. I remember one day at his uh, at his table in the backyard, and um, I was mentioning to him um, about how the differences of getting loan varies from people to people. And uh, I'm only bringing this up now to let me just backtrack a little bit because I want to speak about Black Lives Matter is opening up what I feel now is opportunities for more uh, courageous dialogue between people to discuss racial issues and disparity and, and making people aware of what's going on. So back, fast forwarding back to this conversation that I had with this gentleman, I told, gave him an example about how we both could have the same kind of qualifications for being eligible for a loan to where uh, it's more likely that he would get it than I wouldn't. And it was based on the color of my skin. And mm -hmm. he agreed with me, but he had no idea that that was it. He just thought that anybody that had the qualifications uh, that were the same, despite their skin color, were eligible. But I told him that's not the case, that the perception is a stereotype usually presented once we see somebody. And my, myself, you know, I'm a, I work in a retail store, and if someone comes in, would make America great again hat. Mm -hmm. I'm stereotyping them right off the bat. You know? yeah. I don't know anything about them. I just know that I don't agree with what he's wearing or she's wearing. And I had to make that statement. And I don't know anything about them. Well, a good example. Become, that. That's become almost synonymous with almost a Confederate flag, if you will, or, you know, all of the outlandish things that the president says, or, you know, earlier we were talking about um, Oklahoma, about Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the massacre in Greenwood. And yet here, you know, coming up on Friday, it's Juneteenth one. And yeah, and they're holding it in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Like that's, you don't get more of a slap in the face than that. And there's so much that this president has said and done that, you know, it's, you can't just look past it, you know, and just being like, oh, well, he didn't mean or, you know, like, how, how can you look past that? Yeah, well, he has backtracked to change the date. Bravo. Oh, did uh, they? I didn't see that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, too, uh, just back to the Confederate flag for a moment. Now that I'm in Central Florida, mm -hmm. uh, I see the flag quite a bit. But I've come to learn that many of the people that fly the flag have no idea what it represents. Right. In some instances. But yet, it does represent the uh, uh, approval of slavery. Right. And these things, you know, must disappear because it goes back again to a stereotype. When you see somebody with a, make, a mega hat on, or maybe I've even been with people who've seen Obama shirts and had a derogatory response to someone wearing it. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so these stereotypes are ingrained in all of us. I don't think that um, it's something that's going to disappear. No, I think it's um, the same. Like when we have, you know, Black Lives Matter, we say Black Lives Matter, and then you immediately get backlash upon that. But I think the fundamental difference is that we say Black Lives Matter, or you know, people have collateral with you know shirts or t-shirts or um, or hats and stuff like that. But it's to signify something good, 
you know, it's to help bring awareness to injustices and the systematic oppression and to have these conversations um, surrounding race. It, it's for the better good. But when you have like a MAGA hat or the Confederate flag or swastikas and you know, stuff like that, that's offensive because the point of these represent like, okay, let's say, you know, some people have the argument that the MAGA hat is not wasn't intended to be representative of, but that's what it is, you know, make America great again. It's like you want to go back in time and oppress people even more, you know, go back in the day to when. Well, I mean, America has never been great. I mean, I mean, America is America. It depends on who, who you're referring to for when it was great. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't great. Then again, too. Yeah. I think America's is, I hate to want to say not great again. I don't think it's ever been great, you know, until we address what is actually happening for it to be great. Right. Um, and now this is something that's sort of a catalyst to making it to be great if we can overcome this systemic racism. It could be a country that could lead the world, but right now we have been put back in the world. In terms of humanity, for sure. You know, I know we have a, or we're, you know, supposed to have one of the strongest economies in the world. So, you know, sure that that's obviously, you know, a good thing, but the humanity aspect of it, I think that's what's lacking. And I think that people think that racism has to be this outward um, expression, just like you mentioned with the differences between Cleveland and Nashville, it's like Nashville, they let you know the U.S. is becoming more like Cleveland in a sense where it's not as outward. Um, it's the microaggressions. It's the, you know, the subtleties here and there that people know are offensive, um, but they don't want to outright and say it as if, you know, they're in the South. Right. And now I think that we can start, you know, to have these type of dialogues now because people are concerned about it. And uh, maybe there's, you know, the effects of it. It's it's just amazing to see so many other people standing up for Black Lives Matter as it's their own. They they, Somehow they're seeing it as their own. Right. And it, it makes a difference in their own lives, you know, so. The one thing I thought that was kind of weird to see are the, um, Let's say like the white people who are coming out and like crying about it, like, like as if they did it or um, like groveling at black people's feet or asking for forgiveness um, for like, I just, that seems extra to me. That seems a little too much. It's not, I don't want your groveling, you know, nobody should want that. Nobody's asking people to like bow at our feet. Um, Where do you think, where's that coming from? It, some not great videos. Um, it's it's really questionable. Um, but but that's even just a place like that. Where I mean, that kind of place. How do you come from a place like that? I mean, I think, I, I think that's also. You know, part I think of, it's probably some kind of guilt-ridden thing. Yeah, and I think know? that's it too. Um, but like, don't now make us responsible for your guilt, or don't you know try and make us comfort you in your place of guilt. Just do better. 
you know, across the board is just do better. You know, you're aware you can, you know, do things silently by donating or, you know, supporting different causes or helping out if you're, you know, nearby, you know, neighborhoods that need it, whatever it is, like just, just take some action. And I think that's the, the biggest ask of the Black Lives Matter movement is taking action for reform across the board. Yep, I agree with you 100%. You know, let's take action to make things better. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so, Dad, you know, I really appreciate you taking some time to, you know, share some of your experiences and um, how you grew up and learn more about you because I don't think we've ever really had the opportunity to kind of sit down and chat more in depth about these kinds of things. So that's been nice. Um, but is there anything that you want to plug for the listeners, any social media handles, <laughs> your YouTube channel? <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, I, I think it's important that, you know, we continue to have the dialogues and have the conversations and especially being curious about things, you know, especially being curious about, you know, where you come from and your history and your, and your life. Because um, at some junction, won't be people around to be able to tell it. Right. And so you have to, I think it's important to, uh, to gather as much as you can. And as I've always said, I think we live in a time that is uh, pretty uh, exciting with technology to be able to preserve a lot of this. Uh, and I got this once. I remember when you guys were bloody babies, we went to my grandmother's funeral, my dad's mom. And I had done a recording, an audio recording with a conversation of her just telling me her stories. And I played it in the car as we were driving down to Tennessee from Ohio. But it just really ingrained into me the importance of archiving our stories so future generations will know. You know, I think about Grayson, which right now I'm doing a diary, an electronic diary that if he ever, when he gets to, at some point he wants to know about me, I'm hoping mm -hmm. that I'm leaving a journal for yeah. him to explore so that he'll be able to, you know, I, for me, it helps me better come to myself. It makes me better understand the person that I am when I have mm -hmm. some questions about it. So right. just keep up the good work and keep on being um, curious about things and letting your voice be heard and uh, taking this kind of bold action, I think uh, just makes my, makes me so proud of you and proud of other oh. young people doing something to make a difference. So I appreciate that. Thanks, Dad. Uh, you're welcome. incredible experience it's it's really neat to be able to do that with my dad and I hope you all learned something too I know uh, a lot of times we are approached in a way that you know all black people know all things about the black experience and really we know our experiences and um, we can speak on you know what's shared with us but I thought this was pretty neat to be able to do this with my dad and get some further perspective about you know how he grew up and you know, how that uh, transposed to the way that he and my mother raised us. So that I really enjoyed that. And I hope you all enjoyed that too. So we're at the part of the show where we um, do our weekly Faith and Humanity Restore. This is where you give back where you can by supporting businesses that incorporate giving from sales to charities or donating directly to the source. 
a dollar or a share, it all counts. So um, some products that I've recently been purchasing have been black uh, from Black-owned businesses. And so one would be Black & Bold. That's the first Black-owned co- coffee company in the U.S., which is pretty neat. And so I've got two bags of their coffee beans, which is absolutely incredible. I love a good dark roast coffee, and this is exactly that. Um, I'll go ahead and post you know, the link to um, their website in the show notes. This is just coming from the back of the bag. Black and Bold was born to assist disadvantaged domestic youth with defying their odds in pursuit of living their best lives, in turn creating a better future for us all. Therefore, 5% of all profits are contributed to initiatives across the U.S. that further this imperative. How incredible is that? So um, again, I, par- I purchased two bags of um, their coffee beans, and I am incredibly happy with this purchase. And we'll make sure I'll continue to support their business and enjoy a solid cup of coffee. There's so many different ways that you can support with black businesses. And I mean, really, there are a plethora. So I think the main goal is just being able to elevate and um, make people more aware of what is available that are coming from black businesses, even if it's something so simple as your coffee or, you know, the books that you purchase or sunscreen. Like I, I'm going to um, hopefully be getting this black girl sunscreen in the mail here soon. I just um, completed a, an order the other day and I'm incredibly excited to get it. Um, and, you know, this is made for us by us. So please, any way that you can support black business, whether it's the ones that I mentioned, or if you have any suggestions, feel free to, you know, send me a message on Instagram. Um, you can follow me at Real Relatable Podcast on Instagram, or you can always shoot me an email to realrelatablepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to get your thoughts on black businesses that you have utilized and what's working for you. Um, and I'd be happy to share that on the podcast. Or if you do have any thoughts about the episode or any comments or questions or topics that you want to discuss, whatever the case may be, feel free to hit me up. As always, I appreciate you guys hanging out with me. And until next time, be sure to keep it real and stay relatable. Bye.